Hello, writers. I'm excited because today we have a good friend of mine on the show, Lee Kravitz. And after writing some great nonfiction book, Lee has written his first novel, The Last Confessions of Sylvia P., which is getting a lot of attention, in part because it isn't just a first novel. It's a novel about Sylvia Plath, and it's about confessional poetry and bipolar disorder, among many other things. And it's interesting to me, Brooke, to revisit Sylvia Plath because I discovered her as a young college student through her novel, The Bell Jar. And I feel like The Bell Jar was a rite of passage for people when I was growing up, right up there with Catcher in the Rye. And the novel is, among other things, about her struggles with bipolar disorder. And after reading it, I read her poetry and became aware of her fraught marriage to the poet Ted Hughes and his philandering and then her tragic suicide. And she actually killed herself by putting her head in her oven. And I believe her children were taking naps at the time. So it was a suicide that, you know, invited a lot of questions and still invites a lot of questions and, and has really gripped people over the years. And this is all to say that Sylvia Plath is a writer who isn't just legendary on the page, but beyond it. And since discovering her way back in college, I think she's been subsumed by the mythology around her in my mind. And I, I'm not sure how to put it. But she became the image of the suicidal writer so much that I think I forgot who she was as a person. So Lee's book is interesting to me because of the way it makes the connection between her bipolar disorder and the genesis of the confessional poetry movement, which was also led by Anne Sexton and Robert Lowell in Boston, you know, two poets who who also face psychological struggles and appear in the novel. So this helped novel helped rehumanize her for me in really interesting ways. And Brooke, I know there must be some super great memoirs out there about bipolar problems and depression. And like confessional poetry, my guess is that the act of writing about them, the act of confessing is still a brave thing to do because even though it's been 50 years since Sylvia Plath died, there's still a stigma to mental problems. Yes. I mean, in fact, uh, mental health memoirs are a subgenre of memoir. There are yeah. tons and tons of them. Yeah. And uh, it's wonderful, actually, for that very reason that you say, because mental health is still so stigmatized. And so I always think these are brave memoirs, brave memoirists that are pulling back the lid uh, on all that is that life, you know, living with something like that for their readers and for the culture. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big deal. And it's brave indeed. You know, when I got to seal press as a young acquisitions editor, I quickly realized that since our mandate was to acquire women's stories, that stories of mental health were very much going to be in my wheelhouse as an editor. And so in those early years, I did a lot of reading alongside acquiring to familiarize myself. I mean, that's probably not probably, that is when I fell in love with memoir as a genre. And I remember so well some of those early books that I read because they were formative to my career. Uh, and one, I think the very first one that I read about manic depression, which is what we called bipolar back then, um, was An Unquiet Mind by Kay Redfield Jameson. And that book really like changed the way that we think about quote unquote madness. You know, I mean, it really did sort of shift the landscape and, and open the door for people to be, talk more openly um, about depression, bipolar, and then therefore other mental illnesses. You know, I've read books about borderline personality and others. And so, you know, these books, they have all since then, you know, She Writes Press, of course, has done many books about uh, mental health issues as well. So I thought um, if I could, I would give a shout out to a couple of books that I love. 
on our list on the She Writes press list, we have Prozac Monologues by Willa Goodfellow. Uh, And the reason that I love that book is because Willa writes about what it's like to be in the throes of mania. So it's very insightful. It's also kind of a wild ride because, uh, you know, the bipolar highs are so high and the lows are so low. And so it's kind of a lens to experience what that would be like, particularly if you don't suffer from bipolar. And then I also think it's important to mention a couple of early writers who paved the way for women to write on these topics, notably uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman with her very famous short story, The Yellow Wallpaper. Back in 1899, Kate Chopin published The Awakening, and that was very groundbreaking and therefore also very controversial in its time, uh, you know, just about all of the depressions um, and sort of mental heavinesses that were certainly characterized as other things back then. But that book is credited as being a precursor of American modernist literature, you know, that would go on to inspire the likes of Faulkner and Hemingway, Edith Wharton and Henry James. So this is a big and important topic, you know, that weaves its way into literature in general, Uh, as I know, you know, Grant, so maybe you could touch upon some of your favorite novels, you know, classic or otherwise that center mental health. Yeah. You know, as I thought about this, this week, it occurred to me how many important novels in my life have depression or other mental problems at their center. So I think, as you mentioned in memoir, it it is a type of subgenre in fiction, uh, perhaps less acknowledged, but it's definitely very present. And I'm thinking of, you know, the delusional qualities at the center of the character Don Quixote, the fevered insanity and crime and punishment, the solipsistic depression of Hamlet, and then perhaps the works I think of most when I think of depression, there's Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, who also committed suicide, and then its contemporary companion novel, The Hours, by Michael Cunningham, which dealt with depression and suicide and was made into a really great film as well. And speaking of films beyond that, I wanted to mention Ordinary People, which was written in the 70s, I believe, and it really influenced me as a teen, in part because of the really good movie with Timothy Hutton that won an Academy Award. And then since I'm speaking about my teen years, I think my basic awareness of psychological illness came from literature. And 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 I especially remember being haunted by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Sybil, uh, but two novels that were also made into movies. And, and they scared me as much as a horror movie might in the portrayal of mental illness and the, you know, especially the horrific institutional care that people received. And I, when I think of those novels, I think, uh, yeah, I think of the exorcist for some reason. I mean, they're all the same era and maybe that's a bad analogy, but, but it also seems relevant because mental illness does possess one or can be seen that way. So there's obviously a literary tradition here. And I know this is an age old question, but I'm curious if you have any theories, Brooke, about the connection between mental illness and creativity, if there is one. Um, And if you ever have any thoughts or theories about that. Yeah, I mean, I I do think there's a connection. You know, I, I think about how we mythologize it, though, and that that's the thing that's potentially problematic. Um, like, there's no question, for instance, that bipolar, you know, being the manic illness that it is, creates these exuberant high streaks for people that are incredibly productive. And I've worked with writers while they're in the throes of bipolar highs, actually, um, even if they're medicated. And the productivity is really something to behold. 
So that's just like a very true thing. But then it's also met with the opposite force of when those writers are pulled into depression and the depressive streaks are the opposite, right? They're incredibly anti-productive. So I think that writers who struggle with depression, you know, those people, of course, know what it feels like to be on the precipice of darkness, maybe wholly engulfed. And then when you're in that kind of space, there are moments that I think are creatively enlightening, you know, like in the suffering, there might be a kind of obsession that can happen around suffering, even around death. Um, You know, we see this in Emily Dickinson's work, for instance. So, you know, I look at it and I think, well, it's not anything you'd wish on yourself or on a writer. Um, And I don't like the way that the culture idealizes suffering artists, because I think it's also problematic for young artists, you know, who are coming up and think that this is some way to achieve greatness. Uh, You know, and then, of course, I'm saying, like, I do think it's just true physiologically and psychologically that these connections exist. So I don't know, you want to build on that maybe? Yeah, I should note that I'm no authority on this. So I'm just tossing out ideas from things I've read or my personal experiences. But I, I agree with you that mental illness and creativity sometimes get romanticized, just as creativity and diction get romanticized. So we should remind ourselves that it's no fun to have psychological problems. And there are plenty of people who don't struggle with conditions like depression or schizophrenia who have perfectly rich and fertile creative lives. I think there is a connection, though, um, especially in regard to your Emily Dickinson reference. Um, Her words ring the truest to me when I think of writing advice I would want to give if I only had one thing to say. And she said to write the truth, but write it slant. And and when I've struggled with with more minor things like insomnia or, or anxiety, I see I see the world at a slant. And that that definitely informs my writing. And I also just struggle and that that struggle does serve to connect me with others and their problems. And I like to think that deeper empathic connections lead to deeper writing. But going back to the origin of this question, you know, the the idea that very creative people are also, you know, a little crazy, again, with quotes around that has been around since, you know, humanity's earliest days. Um, I read that, that Plato, you know, noted the eccentricities of poets and Aristotle observed that some creative types were also depressives. And then, you know, modern times, I mean, speaking of mythologizing and romanticizing, it, there's the popular image of Van Gogh, you know, cutting off his ear and, and painting, you know, so well because of his uh, bipolar condition as well. So I read up a little bit on this, and there's, there's, there is research that suggests creativity and mental illness can share a process called cognitive disinhibition, which interested me because that describes a failure to keep what they call useless data images or ideas out of conscious awareness. And I think the best way to understand this is that um, this makes creative minds more fertile because you're connecting discordant or distant things. But at its worst, it can contribute to conditions like schizophrenia. So I think you're you're unable to kind of synthesize things, which is part of creativity. So yeah, one thing that the um, article also mentioned, though, that was that most creative people actually don't exhibit severe mental problems at all. But, you know, rather, we we just kind of like fixate on those notable examples like Vincent van Gogh or Sylvia Plath or Virginia Woolf. They stick in our minds. So I think the mythology around, you know, the whole concept of mad geniuses can be really misleading. I mean, I, I think that mythology can serve to glorify mental illness in a way that doesn't speak to how just painful and undermining it really is. 
Yeah, that's important. That um, undermining part, it it doesn't get discussed nearly as much. And it's complicated too. Um, Like I've known a number of people who've been diagnosed with bipolar over the years who say that the meds dull their creativity, Mm -hmm. um, you know, who feel that being medicated or in being medicated, they lose a piece of themselves. Uh, And that might be the piece of themselves that's the most creative, but it also might be the piece of themselves that's the most reckless and self-harming sometimes. Uh, You know, and back to Sylvia Plath, obviously we know she committed suicide and it's so tragic and it's such a deep loss. And there are countless other artists, you know, just top of mind, Robin Williams, David Foster Wallace, Anne Sexton, uh, you know, that take themselves to that ultimate end point. And so then we're not really speaking enough about how dangerous and painful this stuff can be for people who are suffering. And of course, the reverberating effects can't even be quantified. Yeah, I recently saw um, the stand-up act by Taylor Tomlinson. It was on Netflix, and she was actually joking about these topics, you know, joke being her poetry, essentially. And she was recently diagnosed as bipolar, so she went through a, through a history of it. And she, she joked – I'm not going to tell her jokes because her jokes are much better, but I'm going to kind of recount a few. And she joked that when she told her father in high school that she was depressed, he told her that she just needed to eat more protein. Um, so I told her to have some peanut butter. Hilarious. Very insufficient <laughs> uh, response. Uh, the peanut butter didn't do the trick, as you might imagine. And then later he advised her to stay away from people she cared about when she felt depressed. <laughs> Again, bad advice. You know, made her feel like she was a, a werewolf or something, you know, um, that she was going to infect people with her madness or her danger. But anyway, she goes on in her routine to talk about her hesitation to making being bipolar part of her stand-up act. And she's got a bunch of funny anecdotes about other people's reactions when she revealed her diagnosis to them. So the reason I mention all this, though, is just to say there's still a need for confession and expression of these issues because mental illness isn't something a jar of peanut butter is going to take care of. So I'm looking forward to, to talking more about these issues and Sylvia Plath with Lee Kravitz after this very short break. Hey, everybody, this is Brooke, and I am excited to let our listeners know, especially those of you who might be working on a memoir, that I'm co-leading another six-week intensive this spring called The Heart of Memoir, starting on April 5th and going six consecutive Tuesdays. I'm extra thrilled because one of our teachers is Kiese Lehman, who wrote the memoir Heavy. And if you listen to this show, you know that I reference Kiese a lot. Uh, He is the author of the memoir Heavy. I've long admired his work, who he is as a person, as well as an author. Uh, So the fact that he's teaching for us is a huge coup and something you don't want to miss. And also teaching is Ashley C. Ford, who wrote the critically acclaimed award-winning memoir, Somebody's Daughter. She is absolutely incredible. We also have Joshua Moore, who's written two memoirs, Sirens and his latest, Model Citizen, and Anna Q, the author of the beautiful memoir, Made in China. Linda Joy Myers and I love teaching these courses, love co-leading these courses, and we'll be teaching alongside these memoirists this spring as well. It's called The Heart of Memoir because we know that the way to move readers with your memoir is always through the heart. So join us to learn craft through that context and with a roster of seriously incredible teachers. We hope you'll join us. You can check it out at www.magicofmemoir.com. And thank you. Thank you. 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm super excited to uh, introduce my friend Lee Kravitz, who is the author of the novel The Last Confessions of Sylvia P., as well as acclaimed nonfiction, Strange Contagion, and Super Survivors. He's written for print and television, including The New York Times, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, Psychology Today, The Daily Beast, The San Francisco Chronicle, and PBS. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that's how I know him. We're both on the advisory board for this very cool organization, Lit Camp, which puts on a literal Lit Camp every year, among other things. So welcome, Lee. It is awesome to be here. Thanks, Grant. Yeah. Well, Lee, I think the origin story of your new novel is really interesting, or at least what I've read about it. And I read that you picked up an old paperback copy of Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, which was one of the books available to patients at the Menlo Park Veterans Affairs Hospital, where you were doing some postgraduate work in psychology. And I should note that that just happens to be the same hospital in Menlo Park that inspired Ken Kesey to write the famous One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That is true. That is absolutely true. So, and I know that, yeah. Oh, let me go. Go, let go, me, go let ahead. Let me just ask the question, Lee. <laughs> yeah, would you? You're doing great. Yeah, I, I appreciate your eagerness here. But um, no, I, the thing I wanted to ask is like, I think it's interesting the way that people both discover an idea for a story and then how or why they commit to it. So I'm just curious. You picked up this paperback. What happened when you picked it up and read it, and what led you to like committing to writing a novel based on it? It was a, it was an interesting moment. I had read the bell jar uh, when I was younger and, you know, like a lot of people have, and it sort of exists in your sort of psyche the way that classic novels do. And I think it was something interesting about running into the book actually in a mental hospital in a ward that was sort of jarring that sort of got my attention at first because it, it, it really was a book that didn't even really belong in that kiosk, you know, there were all these sort of thriller novels that were there to sort of entertain and get get your mind off of the fact that you're in a mental hospital. Um, and and you know, I was there because, you know, as you said, I before I became a writer, um, I got my master's in counseling psychology, and I was doing some postgraduate work at this hospital. And um, you know, so I was there every day watching, you know, working with the, the patients. And here's this book, and so I pick it up, and over about three days, I, I, I read the book cover to cover. And the thing that just sort of struck me was it, it wasn't just the thinly veiled memoir of, of Sylvia Plath, which is what the bell jar is. It's it's a novel that's based very much on Sylvia's life. Instead of you know her calling herself Sylvia Plath in the novel, she calls herself Esther Greenwood. And you know, instead of her real psychiatrist, Dr. Ruth Barnhouse, she calls her Dr. Nolan. And so you, you have, it's, 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 it's all there. It's all real, but the names have been changed to sort of protect the innocent. But it was also, as I was reading it again, it was also telling a parallel story. And that was the thing that really struck me. It was this, it was a parallel story of the birth of confessional poetry, which is this whole movement of poetry that changed not only poetry, but literature in general. When we think about sort of poetic movement, poet, poetry movements, we think of things like surrealism or romanticism or the, even the metaphysical poets or the graveyard poets. And these are all poets and these sort of movements that started in, in, in these sort of gothic towns or in universities. But confessional poetry started in mental hospitals. It actually started in these wards, just like the one I was walking through. And um, Sylvia Plath was one of the, the originators of it, along with people like Anne Sexton and, and Robert Lowell. And so I saw, you know, as I read this, I thought, gosh, you know, that is a story that I really want to tell. Um, I, I want to know the origins of, 
this movement. And I want to know the people that sort of led, led it to sort of happen. And I wanted to <laughs> tell the story of somebody in a mental hospital sort of coming to a place of artistic freedom. Well, that's fascinating and really quite prescient because I was just going to ask you about those characters based on Anne Sexton and Robert Lowell um, and this confessional poetry movement that you're talking about. We had um, Kim Adonizio on the show a while back talking about confessional poetry. And one of the things we were circling around in that interview was how confession is a tool of writing as much as it is raw confession and then how it's esteemed, but sometimes denigrated. Um, and especially when it comes to women's writing. So could you speak to the role of confessional poetry in this novel, um, especially because your story is about confessional poetry's connection to bipolar disorder? Oh my gosh, there's so much there. And I love that you, you had the poet on because um, confessional poetry to me, it is, it's about confession. It's about, a, it's also a writing tool. And in, in my novel, I really wanted to show that it's also a tool for sort of working through mental illness. And so we meet Sylvia Plath when she's um, barely uh, 20 years old and she's just been um, hospitalized at McLean hospital. And she's just had a, uh, she's bipolar, as you mentioned, Uh, back then they called it manic depression. And she was suffering a manic phase that just plummeted her into a deep, deep, deep depression, which is how that, that, that condition works. And when she comes in, she can't read or write or even hold a pencil. And that's true. That really happened. Um, and so she meets Ruth Barnhouse, who is her psychiatrist, who sort of teaches her not only how to hold a pencil again, but how to express her thoughts and feelings in a way that, well, really society around her told her that she couldn't and shouldn't. And that is what confessional poetry is really all about. It's about the the person who's writing it, explaining thoughts and feelings that are especially back in the 1950s, were considered very controversial. We don't talk about these sorts of things. You know, we don't talk about lust or death, abortion, incest, grief. We don't talk about these things because, yes, they happen to everybody. And they uh, these are very human experiences. But in polite society, we don't talk about that. We, we can't talk about it. And in fact, the poets around uh, that were on the outs, you know, it's on the outside of confessional poetry. You know, people like Robert Frost, who really pushed against sort of the movement of of the personal I, you know, the the confessional nature of it. Even Ted Hughes, you know, pushed against it. You know, they said that you know we don't need to be your therapist. We don't need to hear your inner innermost thoughts. We want to see how you see the world outside of you, not the world inside of you. And Sylvia and and people like Anne Sexton changed that completely. And they said, no, what we're thinking and feeling is, is worth exploring because it is so human. And, you know, I can describe nature around me and that's a very sort of personal experience. But when I talk about the, you know, my own personal experiences, it's me trying to connect with the world in a way that nobody else has. We can relate to all, you know, these thoughts and feelings we are all there. We are all Sylvia Plath in those moments. We are all Anne Sexton when we read Anne Sexton's poetry. We are all Robert Lowell when we read Robert Lowell's observations about the world around him and within him. So that is really sort of how confessional poetry works with literature, but also works with the psychology of, of the person writing it. 
Lee, I, I think you just gave the opening speech of a confessional poetry uh, graduate seminar there. <laughs> uh, anytime. I just need a, you know an honorary doctorate. I'm there. That's, that's all I ask. Yeah, no, that was really great. Um, you situated it so well in, in a historical context um, and a literary history of poetry. And I want to talk about the history of psychotherapy now uh, because you're a psychotherapist yourself. And so I'm curious, what role did your own professional knowledge and experience play in the narrative? And one thing that I found really curious was just this when I thought about myself as a writer, if I were you, how there might be this tension between what I know about psychotherapy now versus what was known back in the 50s um, and how it was practiced with a, with a patient like Sylvia Plath. God, Grant, that was a great question. It's, I mean, actually, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a great question because you, you hit the nail on the head. In 1950s, the early 1950s, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, or I show it a little bit, but it, it, for me, it was really a significant thing to sort of focus on in some ways. There was a major shift in how psychotherapy and psychiatric help um, was practiced. In the uh, early you know, 20th century, you had a lot of Freudian sort of psychology. It's a lot of you know, uh, analysis. And there was electroconvulsive shock therapy and insulin shock therapy, which is sort of like the standard you know, treatment for uh, manic depression. But then after the early 1950s and, and beyond, there was a major split because you had practitioners coming in and trying new medications, but also trying something called person-centered therapy. The idea is that we don't look at the illness. We look at the person who is going through it. And each person who's going through it is, is an individual, a human being who is suffering from, from mental illness. And so we start to see um, art therapy developed and uh, experiential sort of therapy, play therapy, um, and uh, of course, there was also new medications that came on board that really helped people um, who were going through bipolar disorder as well. And we we sort of leaned toward that a lot more today. But, you know, back in the 50s, there was that split. And Dr. Ruth Barnhouse in, in the novel really sort of encapsulates that sort of new way of approaching psychotherapy and psychiatric help in general. And of course, the people that she works with in McLean Hospital, sort of the old guard, sort of reject that. And we, we sort of see that play out in the novel and what happens to her and how Sylvia becomes both her advocate and sort of her victim as well. You know, as, as a uh, when, I, when I was practicing, uh, which, you know, about 10 years ago, um, I was seeing a lot of folks who'd come in with, with, with bipolar disorder. And the thing that always sort of struck me was... One, how human they were. When you're sitting with somebody as they're going through a manic sort of phase, there is a deep, deep empathy that you sort of, you're, you're following alongside this person. And I remember being struck by a deep sadness. Um, you know, there was one one patient in particular, I remember he he walked into my office and he was perfectly fine perfectly fine and in about 30 minutes into the into the session some word caught him funny i and or it caught me funny actually and i asked him about it and then he looked at me funny and i could tell something had changed behind his eyes and he began to spiral i mean just really spiral into this manic sort of like you know pressurized speech and his actions got very jittery and jarring he was 17 years old and we wound up hospitalizing him for 10 days. And I remember the fear, the, the heartache, the heartbreak 
uh, that his family was experiencing. This was a kid who was going to be going to Yale the next year. Um, and he, he did not go. Um, and he wound up staying and living at home for a long, long time because of it. And there was just this sort of, I don't know that there was this, I wouldn't say it was, you know, transference or counter transference, but it, it definitely struck me. Um, so when I started writing about characters, um, fictional and, and non, you know, and real, um, in these sort of, um, you know, mental health, uh, facilities and mental wards and asylums, I wanted to convey their, their most human elements. I wanted to show, uh, people who were, first and foremost, just human beings who also were suffering. And so you've got Dr. Ruth Barnhouse, who is seeing the person behind the the, the illness and removing them as best she can from the, the institution of both old school mental health and also sort of the way that the world views them. So interestingly, thanks for sharing that personal story with us too. Uh, it puts into context, I think, some aspect of Sylvia Plath as a person, right? Because she's just so legendary beyond her status uh, as a writer, you know, in part because she was also married to the poet Ted Hughes, and she had this tragic suicide. And I'm wondering how your view of Sylvia and the bell jar changed while you were writing this novel when you were living with her every day as a character. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, I don't know if it changed so much, but it definitely got richer. Hmm. When we when we think about Sylvia Plath, she died at a very young age. She was 30 years old when she died by suicide. And what winds up happening after somebody who's so talented, you know, writes a novel like The Bell Jar and has a vaunt, you know, just reams and reams of poetry that later came out after her death. We look at that, that her death and we, we see a big hole, you know, and we fill that hole with mythology. The myth of who Sylvia Plath was or could have been, um, we, we, we elevate her in this way and we see her as almost sort of more than human and also as, as someone who is, um, you know, tragic as this sort of like archetypal character. As I was working with her, I saw her as, as who she was. I read every single letter that she wrote, every single journal entry that she, she, she wrote down. And we are in a, uh, you know, in a great age right now where we can actually read so much of her, her personal writing. And what you see when you walk with her day to day is somebody who is deeply human, who is, who is not superhuman at all, um, who is incredibly frail and incredibly lovely as well. I mean, and she just happened to have a wonderful way of articulating the world around her. But if you can look past that, you can see somebody who, you know, got out of bed every morning and, and took care of her kids and also struggled with the idea of even getting married or having kids and who at the end of her life was so desperate for normalcy. I mean, you can read her final letters and they are, they are, this is somebody who did not want to be suffering the way she was suffering. And so, you know, it was, it was the same sort of interaction that I had with that young man who started spiraling in my office. As you're reading her, her final letters, you, what you're seeing is somebody who is, um, hurting deeply and you just want to reach out and, and, and try to help. And of course you can't. Well, in, in the book, um, your book on Sylvia Plath, there's a discovered manuscript being auctioned off in the novel. And that also functions as an image for the way that Plath herself has been auctioned off after her death in a way. Um, and I know even her, her daughter is currently auctioning off some of her personal items now. Wedding rings even. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah. So, I, I mean, this, this brought up to me, like both, you know, how do you feel about an author being turned into a product in this way? And, and I'm just curious if, if part of your aim of writing this book was to revive the real Sylvia Plath or pose the question. You know, it's, it's, um, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to, to, to do what she couldn't, which is, I, I almost wanted her to be able to, to, to stand up 60 years after the fact and, and say, you know what, I'm a human being too. I'm much more than just this image. Um, you know, I don't think I have an answer for do we, you know, what do artists owe their, their, their audiences? I think it, I went into the novel, you know, writing process wondering, can we own or, or do they owe us something? You know, how do we, how do we sort of, you know, contain the, the artists that we sort of read and, and hold dear in our lives? What do they owe us? What do we owe them? And I think by the end of the, uh, the novel writing process, I, I don't think that there were answers, just more questions. And the way that I sort of structure the novel, you know, there's three storylines in three different eras. And they all sort of circle Sylvia as she's sort of, you know, moving through her growth. I think what I landed on was I wanted to see how other people, different people sort of approached that question and came to different answers themselves. So you know, you have her, her confidant and psychiatrist feels a sort of ownership, like a, like a, like a parental sort of ownership of Sylvia. Um, you have her, her bitter rival who feels a sort of remorse and regret and a sort of um, anger that she didn't get more from Sylvia. And then you have sort of this modern curator who is, is struggling to figure out, well, you know, is she the caretaker of Sylvia's sort of legacy? And if so, you know, what does that mean? What does protection look like? And so we sort of, you know, sort of approach this question from multiple perspectives and multiple angles, which really sort of belies the, you know, the, the answer, which is, I don't think there there is an easy way to answer that question. Yeah. Thank you, Lee. I, I'm loving your answers. They're so deep. Um, and it's churning my mind here, you know, and, and thinking about reviving Sylvia. Um, and this is our final question for today. Um, it's interesting to me that you wrote a book through a women's uh, lens, you know, through the perspective basically of three different women, actually. Yeah. So tell us about writing and the female gender, you know, especially about someone who's such a feminist icon. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a really, I understand the delicate nature of that question. And I've actually thought about it quite a bit. Um, you, you almost have to when, you, when you're doing this. You know, when I started, when I decided I was going to write about Sylvia Plath, I owed it to Sylvia, I felt, to portray her correctly. Because I was, I was working with somebody who was, at, at, you know, at, at, at her base level, a very delicate human being who deserved to be shown honestly, but also carefully. And so I went into the, the process with that mentality. Writing from the perspective of three different women, it, it came actually surprisingly naturally. But I think it's because I didn't think of it as going into the story, getting into the, the minds and, 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 and souls of, of three women. But I came at it from the perspective of almost a psychologist going into the minds of people who are, you know, confronting art and uh, exploring what Sylvia Plath meant to them. So I was really curious about how people uh, shaped Sylvia and how Sylvia shaped them. And so that made it a lot easier to get into these characters' sort of psyches, into their, into their voices. If you, if you listen to, I actually have a, a recording device on my phone, and I, I, I will um, 
I hope they never come to light because, you know, I'll, I'll actually uh, dictate in their voices, you know, Boston Rhodes, the, the rival poet uh, who's female, I, I will actually dictate in her voice. And uh, Esty, the, the curator, I dictated in her voice and, and Dr. Ruth Barnhouse the same. So it was easy to sort of slip into those characters simply because I was curious about how they thought and what they were feeling. But it was also like, you know, deciding that I was going to write from the perspective of three women, it came almost out of necessity. If I was looking at the influential forces, the people who influenced Sylvia, I knew that one of them had to be Ruth Barnhouse, her, her psychiatrist at the, uh, when she was young. And she's female. So there was one. The second storyline dealing with her rival, I knew I needed a character who was essentially exactly the same as Sylvia Plath. And that's how you kind of construct your your antagonist, right? It's it's somebody who is exactly the same as your protagonist, and they want the exact same thing, but they come at it from a different place. So that character needed to be female as well. The third character, the curator, I struggled with that. At one point, the curator was actually male, and uh, that whole storyline was done through a, a male lens, but it wasn't working. It wasn't working at all. And I, I, it was almost like a Rubik's Cube. I kept on playing with it draft after draft after draft until finally there was just some symmetry, some math that came into play. And I was like, you know, I think, I think this character needs to be female. It has to be. And once that piece, you know, sort of locked into place, the whole novel came alive. And so that's the, the story sort of told me where it needed to go and who needed to be telling this story. I mean, there are male characters, but the fact that it was females who who sort of tell this story and shape it, um, it was a you know I took it you know I took it very seriously, but it also just it was the only way to go. Well, thank you so much, Lee, and congratulations on the release of the book. It's just marvelous. So, really enjoyed reviving Sylvia Plath for me, certainly. Congratulations, Lee. Thank you for having me on, guys. It's been a blast. We'll be right back with today's book trend. Brooke, for this week's book trend, I wanted to talk about online pitching because it's become one crucial way for authors who aren't attending cocktail parties in Brooklyn to get their book idea in front of an agent or editor and get access, which is super hard to get. And it's on my mind because there are more and more events like this. For example, every February, NaNoWriMo teams with the Book Doctors to put on Pitchapalooza, an online version of Pitchapalooza, and many NaNoWriMo writers have found publication as a result. And then we sponsored an event called DVCon, which grew out of hashtag DV Pit, which is a Twitter event created to showcase pitches from unagented, marginalized voices that have been historically underrepresented in publishing. So it's interesting to me to see how the internet gives people access and how it allows them to pitch their books and get discovered. And so I was curious, Brooke, have you ever participated in an online pitch event? Surprisingly, actually not online, but in person, yes. You know, I've done a lot of them over the years, pitch events in conjunction with writers' conferences mainly, and they're so fun. I have loved being a panelist for these kinds of events. I know that the writers learn a lot from the feedback that they're given, and it's kind of like running a gauntlet. You know, it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It takes a lot of guts to stand before a panel and give your pitch, and I imagine that's similar online, kind of depending on how you're doing it. But I think it's also part of the reason 
and it's so well loved. It's kind of like performance and critique and a show of bravery and expertise on display. So it's got a lot of great elements. Yeah, it's super entertaining, especially the live ones that I've uh, attended. And, you know, online pitching events are on my mind because the event that kind of the, the, the first big one that I knew about, at least, uh, that started all these online pitching events is called Hashtag Pit Mad and, and Pitch Wars. And uh, Pitch Wars is coming to a close. Um, thousands of writers have benefited from the Pitch Wars communities and, and opportunities to learn and get published. Um, but they, you know, since it, it was interesting to watch how much they express thanks when the event is going away. And I just wanted to read this. Uh, the writer Nancy Parrish told Hot Sheet, I think one of the biggest contributions they gave us was, of course, the obvious ability to pitch agents, but also the ability to see in real time what agents were looking for and what was sparking their interest. And I think that that encapsulates why writers should be a part of these pitch events even if they're not pitching themselves just trying to get inside an agent's mind yeah and it's an invitation right i mean the basics of pit mad was that authors could pitch their books in 140 characters and then that kind of blew up the only problem with you know this style of pitching is that it's maybe not super uncommon that the agents and editors will really love the ideas but then they get the book and the book doesn't really hold up to be something that can be acquired so that can be disappointing for writers and just important to remember that there's so much more to execute beyond you know 140 characters yeah that was a really interesting part of it and um I mean, one unfortunate thing that came out of uh, Pitch Wars closing up shop was that although it was a, you know, it was set up as a very thoughtful program to, to help authors get to the next level, it seems like a lot of that kind of author competition and the ire that follows from that took over. And even, even though Pitch Wars was a nonprofit and everything was free, a lot of people in the community became too demanding and even turn their competitive juices to harassment you know and i and i know that uh pitch wars managing director kelly garrett was was the focus of some of that harassment yeah that's really tough and um you know should be a reminder to all of us to be generous to the writing communities we're a part of you know to support these communities because people are working really hard to make them happen yeah, and I mentioned that uh, NaNoWriMo has supported a couple of pitch events, and I just wanted to make sure you know, that people know there are many other online pitch events out there, you know, like there's uh, hashtag R-E-V-P-I-T, sorry, I'm spelling this, but RevPit, and hashtag Cookie Pitch, and hashtag PitDark, and hashtag PitchDish, and lots of interesting names. I don't want you to remember them all, so we're going to put these hashtags and, and links and dates in our show notes. Amazing. What I love about these is that there are a lot of them and it's super consistent, uh, which is just like our show. We are here for you every single week, week in and week out. So thanks for that grant. And I hope a lot of you will try out some of these Pitchapaloozas because they're a lot of fun and uh, we'll see you next week. 